with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about U.S. Federal Reserve hike interest rates despite the banking turmoil, and we will also take a look at the chip industry in China. And now, let's begin with our top story. The U.S. central bank has raised its interest rate for the ninth consecutive time to fight inflation. The Fed up its key rate by 25 basis points, and that is the lowest hike in nearly a year, despite the collapse of three banks over the past month. So, why does the Fed keep hiking the interest rate at this moment? Does it mean fighting inflation is more of a top agenda for them than curbing the banking sector fallout? For more on this, join us on the line now at Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, then first, the Fed raised the interest rate again, despite what we have been seeing with those banking issues. So, what do you make of that? Uh, it is consistent with what we have been expecting Fed to do. Um, because the risk of recession has clearly gone up, and the risk of inflation has gone down in the past few months. However, uh, suspension of interest rate hike or even an actual cut doesn't seem likely. Among other things, this may convey a sense of panic.、Uh, even though the wave of bank problems has shocked everyone, panic doesn't seem like the right response. So a smaller Extent in rate hike would actually be reassuring to the market.、Mm-hmm. So, Anna, what do you think? It shows that the Federal Reserve making that decision, the inflation is more of a top agenda for them at the moment. But is that right remedy for the problem? The high inflation? Uh, absolutely not.、Uh, the, the Fed has embarked on a suicide mission.、Um, uh, Jerome Powell seems intent on、uh, trying to prove to people that he set off in the right direction and that inflation is the only fear.、Uh, the fact is, the、uh, world is on an economic precipice.、Uh, it's、uh, fueled by dollars. There's a 31.5 trillion dollar U.S. debt that、uh, remains unresolved as the Congress refuses to put it forward. Uh, there is, you know, they're printing more money in essence to uh, uh, take care of their problems, and you start looking at the way, you know, tr- U.S. Treasuries, which have now become long-term U.S. Treasuries, have become toxic assets, and that means that countries around the world, school districts,、uh, municipalities, etc., are in deep trouble. I mean,、uh, Japan、uh, alone, which is the largest holder of uh, foreign um, treasury, treasuries, I mean, the largest holder of treasuries by a foreign entity, has already lost eighty-seven billion dollars. This、uh, further rate cut is going to increase that.、Um, you know, they either、um, you know start selling their long-term、uh, treasuries and realizing the loss, or they're going to record it on paper. This cannot go on forever. So then, actually, the recent banking fears in the U.S. was there was there a sense that the crisis is under control, or what was the mood like during the press conference? I actually feel the kind of confidence from the Federal Reserve, along with other、uh, government officials,、uh, during this conference and before. 
Um, because when we look at how this pandemic was handled, actually within 35 hours after the SVB uh, collapse, then uh, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve had came up with a joint statement already covering all the depositors. And in fact, creditors for the SVB only were not able to access their cash for one working day. So this kind of speed in response was unprecedented and it has quite effectively calmed the market. And during the com- uh, press conference, there was this also a consensus that fighting inflation remained to be a top priority. Although this threat has been going down, the Federal Reserve will not easily turn around of their policy stance. That is in a way conveying this kind of policy consist- consistency and that's quite important as well to a reassured market. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aina, so two U.S. banks, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, collapsed this month, and people talk about the contagion. So how much responsibility do you think this Fed bear for the banking crisis? In terms of the contagion, you're already starting to see real problems. The market has not reacted favorably to this. Uh, stock markets around the world are down. And quite frankly, they're going to continue to be Um, in terms of uh, smaller banks and internationally, you're going to see uh, a lot of output from this. Remember, I keep telling you, treasuries were supposed to be safe. They're the underpinning of the world economy. Uh, These are things that, you know, pension funds, et cetera, use. Now you've had massive drops in them and the Fed continues on its course. Uh, They've already, you know, said, you know, be prepared for 50 small banks where there have been runs on their um, on their cash accounts uh, to be forced to be in the same situation as SVB. That is uh, depositors pull money out and these banks, even if they were conservatively managed and only kept 25% in these kind of medium to long term uh, treasuries, they'll be forced to sell them and realize a loss and that will put them underwater. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this this thing isn't over. And you, I, I understand uh, from Dan's point of view that, oh, yes, well, you know, let's let's go forward. Let's pretend nothing's going on. But this this is the Titanic hitting an iceberg. And right now, uh, rearranging the duck, deck chair and the captain saying that, don't worry, everything's all right, is not going to um, change uh, the direction of what's happened. Mm. And also, Aina, so the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she was speaking to the lawmakers at Senate hearings on this uh, banking issues. And she spoke about their desire and their decision that they will do absolutely everything in their power to make sure that people saving their deposits in banks remain secure. So what do you make of that and what tools do they have? Well, quite frankly, it's a panic button. I mean, if you want to pretend that this is not a crisis, um, clearly Janet Yellen is telling you that it is. Uh, when you're and you're offering these kind of blanket assurances, when prior to this, uh, the assurance was that in each account you would only be um, reimbursed up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, basically to protect small depositors. Now you're extending that to every corporation in in, in America. You know, you, you basically said the um, the banking system has been nationalized. I, I mean, how else can you put it? This United States is standing now in front of private banks and saying that they're going to keep everything going. So, you know, the, the kind of hypocrisy that you're, you know, you hear about, um, you know, state institutions uh, is, is laid bare. 
Uh, the U.S., without admitting it, has done exactly what accuses all uh, countries it doesn't like of doing. Mm-hmm. And then, so for the banking system, should there be more supervision and oversight from the regulators? And what went wrong, actually? Uh, I have mixed feelings about adding more regulations to smaller banks mm-hmm. um, because it is also difficult for startups and small and medium-sized companies to borrow from banking system. Uh, and SVB has been banking all those startups and 70% of the listed companies in the tech industry in the past decade. And that has been a tremendous push for technology advancement. And regarding what the Fed has done, what it could have done differently probably was prior to the crisis um, to add a bit more oversight to smaller banks. Um, because after the crisis, it turned out uh, even for the size of SVB and Signature Bank, they are too big to fail. But in terms of their response, of the Federal Reserve's response to this banking crisis, I actually think it's quite adequate and fast enough. Mm. And then, so do you think the uh, U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve's interest rate hike, will be moderated in the rest of the year? I do believe so, um, because when we look at what's going on right now, Uh, for the banking system in the U.S. is that the depositors are covered. They're not rushing to pull money out in a panicky mode, but they are moving funds out of smaller banks to bigger banks and also money market funds. Both type of institutions are very likely to do less business uh, in this crisis mode because they're becoming more cautious. And big banks are more tightly regulated than smaller ones. They're required to have more capital and more liquidity. Money market funds also face quite stringent liquidity requirements. So we're probably looking at a serious reduction in credit just in this shifting of the funds already. So for the Federal Reserve, there is no real urgency to hike the interest rate as much as before because the banking system already doing that. Mm. And Aina, also the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell warned that uh, the fallout from the bank failures may hurt the economic growth in the months ahead. What do you think about that? How much will the banking issues and the turmoil impact the U.S. economic growth? So I kind of like saying the cat will get wet if I throw it in the ocean. Um, he's stating the obvious. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of Jerome Powell, I, uh, as you can probably tell. Um, he, he's trying to justify what he sees is his enemy, which is inflation. But he hasn't been able to calm it down. I do agree with Dan uh, that there is going to be significant economic uh, fallout because of the bank's uh, credits is going to tighten up. Um, but you know, Jerome Powell is pushing the U.S. over the edge. Uh, this is going to result uh, not only in recession, but quite possibly a depression. Um, I was on a bank monitoring uh, group, in the, a national bank monitoring group in the United States. The, the problem with uh, monitoring banks is you cannot use the same standards for a huge bank that you use for medium and small banks. They have to be appropriately sized. It doesn't mean that you get rid of um, you know regulation and oversight. And th- this has been a common thing that the banking industry likes. And I understand that uh, Dan, you know, uh, from her perspective, sees this as a huge issue. But appropriate um, 
oversight is what is necessary, not one size fits all or it's either on or off, as many of the Republicans have uh, tried to say in the past. Mm. So uh, at this juncture, yes, expect huge fallout um, and, and the economy is going to crash. You're going to have uh, significant issues there. The question is, how far does contagion go in terms of the international markets? Mm. And Ina, so not only in the U.S., but also in Europe, there is also a bank collapse. Uh, now the UBS is taking over Credit Suisse for more than $3 billion U.S. dollars. And this deal was designed to calm nerves and restore confidence on the global financial market. But has it done that, do you think? Well, I mean, you've had a dead cat bounce. UBS has its own problems. Credit Suisse was particularly bad. I mean, there's oversight issues going back to 2007 when uh, two bond traders uh, inflated their portfolios by $3 billion in order to earn um, bigger bonuses. Uh, and then going forward, all sorts of things have been going wrong there. So the, the the bank itself has real problems. And that doesn't mean that everybody in Credit Suisse is bad. And there's going to be a lot of fallout, a lot of cuts and jobs and things like this. Um, but, you know, the, you have the same problem uh, in, the, in Europe as you have in the U.S. These rapid rate increases that the U.S. has done has forced other countries around the world to defend their currencies, which means increasing their rates. And what does that do? That makes their uh, long-term bonds into toxic assets. And these were all held by uh, across the board. I mean, no one's talking about the hits to uh, pension funds, um, insurance companies, et cetera. These are really the lifeblood of ordinary business. When you think something's safe and it's no longer safe, it completely upsets uh, the entire Apple cart. So you're, you're Expect to see more problems uh, in Europe as uh, people have to figure out what happens when people start withdrawing money and you have to sell these toxic assets at a huge loss. I mean, keep in mind, the bond market last year was the worst in 250 years. Yeah. So that, that that's going back to Napoleon. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had long 30-year U.S. treasuries, you lost almost 40% of your money. Mm -hmm. So Dan, so what do you think? And what do you think this new bank in Europe, actually, it will be made up of UBS and Credit Suisse. So what do you think it will look like? What will stay and what could go? You are from the banking sector, right? Uh, yes. In history, this kind of merger happened repeatedly. Uh, and this round, I actually find it a bit odd that the European regulators actually allow this to happen. Um, because since the 2000 financial crisis, there were a series of rule book being written to precisely wanting to prevent such kind of takeover. Um, for the banking system, uh, a smaller bank failure can be rescued by a bigger bank. But what if this massive merged bank has some internal problem, then who's going to bail it out? Maybe no one. But currently with the failure of Credit Suisse, the rule book written in 2010 was not properly tested. What happened in Europe is actually in one aspect very different from the US is its response to the bank failure. There is this meshed solution uh, using part of the old method of having a bigger institution taking over the smaller institution after the bank failure mm. and the new method of writing off bonds to let creditors take some of the loss. 
So it's very odd outcome, and people actually in the market don't know what to expect if this new big bank has issues.、Mm. So then there are real concerns about the systematic risk globally, and the idea that the SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, the signature Credit Suisse, they are part of a bigger problem coming to light. So how do you view that? And the panics and scares following the bank failure of those important institutions have shown the inadequacy of regulation and also the excessive、uh, credit expansion during COVID eras. And for the regulators, some aspects were positive because at least at this time we didn't see this kind of bitter debate back and forth. And to figure out whether we want to protect depositors or whether we want to rescue、uh, those banks, they made、mm. decision very immediately, so the contagion didn't spread nearly as quickly, and that's good for financial stability. But then we also see this age-old debate about、uh, whether to protect the safety of the system or to stimulate the real economy. Now the pendulum seems to be switching to the more conservative side. So the regulators want to add on more restrictions to all levels of banks, and it probably will happen very soon.、Mm. So, Anna, so how do you see the banking fears rippling effects to the global economy? Actually, this crisis is also dragging down on the oil prices, right? Yeah, it's it's going to drag on everything. I mean, global demand was、uh, estimated to be down. This、uh, will further exacerbate that.、Um, your you know cr- credit is going to be tougher everywhere,、uh, and as a result, you're you're going to have、um, you know more uncertainty, and uncertainty is the greatest fear of business. So there, this will continue to ripple around the world until there's some sort of equilibrium, either、um, a massive、uh, write down on asset pricing and things like this, or you know we, as、uh, unfortunately I see it,、uh, we might be heading towards a depression. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Ina Tangen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China. And after a short break, we'll take a look at the chip industry in China. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth. And impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Advanced chips are often described as the oil of the future. A Chinese chip designer, Longsen Technology, is now trying to develop its own general-purpose GPU, despite being added to a U.S. trade blacklist. The company is evaluating the advanced seven nanometer process from a number of foundries to manufacture its future chips. So, Ina Longsen has pivoted to its own. Architecture in the development of its next-generation CPUs, and the company said it aims to build an independent ecosystem with its own architecture. So, what do you make of the technological development of this company? What's their strategy? Well,、uh, their strategy is to survive and、uh, to provide、uh, the kind of chips that are necessary、uh, for China to continue doing、um, what it does in terms of technology and and building things.、Uh, you know, chips are the、uh, oil of the future. 
Um, you have to have them there. You know, if you look at cars, anything that you have in your house uh, at this juncture has a chip in it. You say even now they, uh, uh, your light switches and things like this. Uh, so they become ubiquitous. Um, in terms of what they're offering, it is not completely new. It's more the fork. They rely on Linux, which is an open source platform, getting them away from Microsoft. Um, the the architecture itself is kind of a mix of ARM and RISC uh, processing, uh, basically on one uh, Chinese processor, they're able to do a number of things. That, let us say that they're being very flexible in their architecture. Uh, the question is how how advanced can they become? They're still about two to three years behind uh, Intel and um, AMD in terms of the capabilities, but quite frankly, you know, for what uh, most of the products that are developed in uh, in China and that, you know, you have active use for chips, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it's more than enough. You don't need small chips for cars and, and all the electronic appliances. But it really is this this is China's big hope to uh, combat uh, the, the restrictions, the technology restrictions that the U.S. is putting on. Mm-hmm. And so some say that the foreign reliance, especially on advanced tools and high-end materials, was hard to reduce in short term. So, Aina, what do you think? Can China achieve its uh, self-reliance on semiconductors, on chips in the next few years? Okay, there, there are two paths and, and uh, ways of dealing with it. One, uh, China can try to uh, reinvent uh, or work around uh, the existing technology. For instance, Holland has these very high frequency etching machines, uh, extreme X-ray, X-ray lithography, uh, which is able to you know, make these micro channels that you can uh, then put more chips, uh, more processors into, et cetera. Or uh, China can um, uh, try to develop the next level of chips. You know, we're all aware that quantum computing is coming on and that the type of of processing that uh, is going to be in the future could lend itself to a different architecture. I think China is going to do a little bit of both, mm-hmm. hopefully more on the latter, uh, putting your money into the future and having an understanding of it like they did with 5G and are con- currently doing with 6G makes a lot more sense than just trying to, you know, follow uh, you know, the, the leaders in a field uh, where it's going to be very difficult to get ahead. Mm. So then, so this two paths, uh, actually, what efforts have already made in this regard? Uh, as we can see that the decoupling in high-tech industry between China and the U.S. is deepening, and it probably will get even deeper in the future because the past restrictions from the U.S. on China didn't work. So now on all levels of government and most of the top industries, the companies are trying to uh, find their own innovation capacity. Mm. Um, But when it comes to chips, we do hear a lot of debate about whether we want to stay in the same lane, uh, trying to do this so-called corner overtaking or whether we want to change lanes to overtake certain type of technologies. Because there are a lot of talks now about how China is doing well in the photonic chips rather than the traditional type of chips. Uh, In the high-tech sector, China hasn't been able to catch up with the US or Europe that quickly because they had the accumulation of past 20 years of tech. But for China to get into a new sector, uh, like new energy industry or new material, it's probably easier for it to find its edge.
Mm. And so, Ina, so earlier the Dutch government announced the plans to impose some export restrictions on the uh, most advanced semiconductor technologies, and they say the companies will have to apply for license to export the technologies to China. Obviously, the U.S.-led initiative involving Netherlands and Japan is targeted to China, but how will the Netherlands and Japan's companies be affected by it? Well, I mean, they're basically cutting themselves off from a huge future market. Um, once China develops the capabilities to be independent, it's not like they're going to go back and say, "Oh, well, you know, let bygones be bygones. We'll we'll just junk our technology and go with yours since you were so loyal to us." Um, this really is causing a, a, a catastrophic split uh, in technology. And uh, it's not going to be to anybody's benefits. Uh, consumers are the ones who are going to pay more. Um, the if if I develop a technology, I can sell it to many people. I can spread the cost of that technology and make more money. If I uh, develop a technology and I only uh, sell it to a few people, obviously my base is smaller, and so only my profit. And if somebody else has to develop their own technology, obviously. Um, you know the costs are going to be greater because you have you know a duplication and th and this was the uh, argument for uh, globalized trade is to allow uh, entities, individuals, and countries to uh, do the best that they could and offer the lowest prices and it it, it fueled the world economy. But unfortunately, um, it wasn't to the satisfaction of uh, America in particular, but Europe as well, as they saw their profits go up, but they saw their uh, their uh, manufacturing capacity go down because they were not competitive and still are not. Mm. And then, so what do you think will be the rippling effects on the global chip or semiconductor sector? Um, the global impact for this uh, uh, decoupling in semiconductor industry might be quite significant because companies have to make business decisions. Um, over what kind of markets they want to edge into. And for the Chinese market, it has the biggest consumer potential. And even for the current situation, there are about 640 Chinese companies on the entity list. But uh, as a percentage of the total number of Chinese companies, which is more than 10 million, it is quite tiny. So the impact on China is actually relatively limited. Mm. But when we look at the global reallocation of the supply chain for semiconductor, we will see this kind of increased competition between different countries and different companies. Um, for the U.S., of course, it wants to set up alternative supply chains. But even this alternative supply chain would eventually rely on China either in the market or for certain component of the intermediate industrial goods. And it's hard to align all those other sovereign nations to come up with a contingent, uh, like a consistent plan, because a lot of those companies are actually in real competition. Uh, it's not as easy as what the market decide when they want to uh, do business with China, but cannot. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Music